It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Well, it took an extra day, but we got the first round of the playoffs into the books. Uh, it took, I don't know, I think about uh, 26 hours to get the uh, Mary Harden-Baylor-Texas Lutheran game finally played. And of all that time, Mary Harden-Baylor had the ball for just 11 minutes, and Texas Lutheran had the uh, ball for the other 25 hours, I'm pretty sure, because I think they had it throughout the entire lightning delay. Um, Keith, that game is uh, one of the big spotlights of the first round. Uh, first round, there were a couple of upsets, set us up for what looks like a really good second round. But, um, you know, when uh, when the storm rolled in to Belton, Texas, I'm I'm thinking I'm looking on the radar. I'm thinking they should have started this game at 10 o'clock or something just to try to get it in. And then they would have avoided all this. Uh, I know the NCAA doesn't like to move games around. My goodness. But uh, sometimes it, it makes sense to uh, start games early. The baseball people certainly know how to do that. And maybe uh, the football people could have uh, could have figured that out as well. Instead, we had, I think, about uh, nine hours of lightning delay on a Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, Saturday night, and then they came back Sunday morning to finish it off. Well, they ended up moving the game around, Pat, after all. And, uh, you know, we were fielding questions, I guess, on Twitter probably as early as, say, Thursday about what what was the precedent for moving a game, uh, a playoff game due to weather. And we had to go back to that, uh, that, that 2003 game between Bridgewater and Lycoming where they had, that was a snow issue. And uh, this was this was lightning. In, in Texas, which was um, you know not something that we we'd ever I guess had to worry about a, a lot before, and uh, so this was not only unprecedented for a, for a playoff game, but the the way uh, everything broke obviously was was completely unprecedented with the game stopping, you know, waiting uh, nine hours what to get get or six hours to get restarted again, playing three minutes and then going back into delay, you know, something you'd be familiar with in, I guess, Major League Baseball, but uh, but not Division Three playoff football. So that was bizarre in and of itself. And then the game itself, based on what we'd known, you know, these two teams played in October and uh, Mayor Harden-Baylor ran away with it, it, you know, got away from Texas Lutheran early in that game and uh, was a 72-16 final. And this one was was completely different. Texas Lutheran was in it from the beginning. They were in it um, when the game was delayed at fourteen ten. They were, uh, you know, when they came back and restarted the game on Sunday, they went toe to toe with Mary Harden Baylor the whole way. There, there's certainly the argument to be made that you know, with a couple of of um, short missed field goals, if they'd gone a different direction, uh, if they'd been able to punch in that last. Uh, field goal they they did kick to make it 27-20 they were you know inside the 10 yard line i think at that point and if they'd been able to punch that in it's it's a different game and uh you know you just look at the numbers okay i don't think forget the weather delay being unprecedented i don't know if i've ever seen a time of possession over 48 minutes in a game and that's the losing team there was there was so much bizarre about it texas loose Texas Lutheran was the team that ran for 300 yards where, you, you know, that was Mary Harden Baylor's old thing uh, for much of the, the 2000s. So there was so much about this game that was interesting. Not that we needed 26 hours to, to ponder it or go through it all, but it uh, but it certainly is one that we'll remember in the same vein as as uh, I guess, the, you know, the Stag Bowl of 2009 that was postponed by weather and and games like that. We'll, we'll remember it for the oddities off the field as much as on the field. The um, uh, Marquis Burrell ends up running uh, 
for 224 yards on 50 carries. Um, I did not get a chance to tune into this game because of other Sunday commitments until uh, Mary Harden Baylor scores with 11.07 to go to go up two touchdowns. And then Texas Lutheran just goes on this uh, methodical. Methodical is usually a good description, a good thing for a drive, uh, but not when you're down by two touchdowns. They went 20 plays, 75 yards. They took 931 uh, of uh, of the last 11 minutes of the game to do so. It's like Texas Lutheran was certainly having success uh, running the ball, and Mary Harden Baylor's defense couldn't get off the field. But man, uh, they that was uh, that's a lot of time to take when you only have 11 minutes to play with. Yeah, it certainly is, and um, there's a a point, of course, when you're down two scores, you want to make sure you score a touchdown. So anything you have to do to get a first down to keep that drive going, fine. But there were there was definitely also a point during that drive where you could kind of detect in the in the Mary Harden Baylor broadcast where they even their broadcasters were were kind of like you know they're looking to the sideline for plays right now rather than, you know, kind of hurrying up to the line and calling something quickly. They were doing what, what they've, what they'd done to that point rather than, than speeding it up. And, you know, they, they score with a minute 36 left. Uh, and, and then, so they're going to try to onside kick it and get the ball back at that point. It's a seven point game. If they, if that works, you know, that then, then you don't complain so much about this drive, but obviously in hindsight, 20 plays taking nine and a half minutes when you're down two scores is odd, but it's also bizarre that they could put together a 20 play drive that took nine and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then after that, so they fail to cover the onside kick. Of course they get the ball back uh, and they have a, a last chance down at the end of the field. It, it clearly, um, you know, uh, Texas Lutheran needed to get as close as it could to the end zone because uh, the Hail Mary pass was left a little short from about, I think it was 31 yards out, and Mary Harden-Baylor comes up with the interception to seal it. So, uh, you know, Mary Harden-Baylor advances, survives, whatever you want to call it, and uh, I think of two things about this game and, and how it relates. First, how it relates to the last game, and then second, how it kind of uh, spins us forward. First of all, uh, I think you mentioned already in this uh, podcast, and I think we've described that first meeting between them this way before, that it was a game that just snowballed on Texas Lutheran and got out of hand. Um, this game didn't do so primarily because uh, Mary Harden-Baylor almost never had the ball. So I don't know if that was just a uh, concerted effort to try to keep Mary Harden-Baylor's offense off the field and shorten the game. Uh, they certainly shortened the game, and they were in it at the end, which they were not in it even practically at the end of the first quarter, let alone the first half the last time around. Um, secondly, wake-up call for Mary Harden-Baylor. I mean, they certainly didn't uh, they didn't play very well on offense, uh, even when they had the football, I would I would guess. If you can't, and on defense, if you can't get off the field uh, in less than 48 minutes, then you've got some trouble even against a, 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 a All-American candidate running back like Barol. Yeah, well, n- not their best game, but also one under odd circumstances. I think there are probably some Crusaders fans out there who are willing to throw this one out because of the way it happened. But I- I'm not sure I totally buy that because even uh, in the you know quarter and a half that got played on Saturday in this game it was a 14-10 game. There was a point early in the game where where the Crusaders picked off a pass and uh, and took it back 
and uh, for, for a touchdown, which would have been uh, obviously a huge play in that game, and it would have started that snowball rolling again, except there was a defensive holding on that play, so it nullifies the, the interception return touchdown. Texas Lutheran goes down and scores, and then they're in the game. Um, Pat, you said a, f- a few things that, that stood out. One was, uh, was, was Texas Lutheran making a concerted effort to shorten the game. Funny we're using the phrase shorten the game in a 26-hour game, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know what you mean there, right? They, they did make a, a concerted effort to control the ball, uh, to, to, to not let um, that snowball get rolling again. And so this was a, a, a case of a very good coaching staff taking a look at that, at that bad game, what happened, and, and coming up with a plan, devising a plan to make sure uh, that didn't happen again. And it didn't. So you got to give a lot of credit to this, to this Texas Lutheran coaching staff. I think it, it says a lot about that program and where it's headed. Um, even though they, they lose this game, you know, to, to outgain Mary Harden Baylor by so much. How does Mary Harden Baylor win with, with 12 minutes of, uh, of time of possession? Well, one of the touchdowns was a uh, um, Camry Runnels 65 uh, yard punt return. Um, they had, they hit a 33 uh, yard touchdown pass to Runnels, a 73 uh, yard touchdown pass to Walker and what was a two play drive. And, um, and even their their last scoring drive in the fourth quarter was only five plays, so they only had two turnovers um, in in that game. It wasn't like a, a a game where there were Texas Lutheran gained all these yards and then kept turning it over in the red zone. It, it wasn't uh, like that at all. But um, Mary Harden Baylor, you know, just just kind of found a way uh, to to get points on the board quickly. And then uh, even though its defense couldn't get off the field, it did enough. Once again, we're kind of left with the question of what would this team, in this case Texas Lutheran, have done if they were placed able to be placed anywhere else in the bracket? They're landlocked into playing Mary Harden Baylor because of the uh, NCA's financial situation, um, and you know that's it. They play uh, Mary Harden Baylor about as as well as they possibly could have played them, um, and we're you know kind of left wondering that again, kind of like we do with the Skyac every year. Who are the teams in the field that that uh, that the Skyac that Chapman might have beaten, for example, in the, this year or, you know, other Skyac teams in previous years. Yeah, it's it's certainly a valid question, and and it one that makes you wonder. Um, I, I guess not even you know who would they beat because you figure they would beat. Um, they probably would have beaten MIT and Husson, and and it would have been interesting to see Texas Lutheran play center, um, which didn't perform all that well on Saturday, but um, but as a team that you know kind of in the same they move in kind of the same circles uh in in the south uh even though they're in they're in different conferences um but i think it's it's also telling that texas lutheran after last year didn't shy away from mary harden baylor they realize now that to you know to get anywhere in in d3 they're going to have to beat mary harden baylor at some point and for them that point is going to come a lot earlier than it is for for a team on the east coast or in in the midwest so uh so they they took that challenge on head on and i feel like even though mary harden baylor won this game and we can sort of uh, chalk it up as as their one stumble just like whitewater uh you know stumbled in week 11 against against river falls and, and then kept on rolling in the first round of the playoffs um you know this game almost says more about uh about texas lutheran and and, and where they're headed from i think they're going to be around for a while just you know by getting a coaching staff to take take a second look at a team and and 
um, to improve by that that much. You know, you lose the first game by 59, and the second one you have a hail mary at the end to to potentially tie it. I think is a big improvement on on uh, on Texas Lutheran's part. How about other thoughts from round one? Other general takeaways to keep in mind? Well, I thought round one, you know, illustrated the disparity in uh, you know across Division three and in matchups, you know. Some of the, the, the first round games, 55-2, 63-3, I know we're used to that and it's not, um, it shouldn't come as a shock to us for, for those of us who, who followed the playoffs for years. And then you have these other great games that are you know, game-winning field goals and, and go played out in, into overtime. So the, the, all that is there in the first round. The excitement is there. And there are certainly games where there were, it was kind of easy to tune out even as you're jumping back and forth to all these great games, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to watch Wheaton Benedictine when St. Thomas and Warburg are, are throwing blows at each other. You're not going to watch, um, you know, a 63 a game, not very much of it when there's a, there's a 22, 15 game and a team is driving for uh, a game winning score. So um, there was, there was certainly kind of some games that I guess, fell behind or, not, or or got tucked behind the curtain, whatever, however you want to say it, um, because there were there were so many great games going on. But I thought it was a pretty good first round, and I'm really excited about the second round because these matchups, um, you know, we don't we don't always get a, a, such a balanced second round. And you know, from John Carroll and Wheaton and Johns Hopkins and Hobart, um, Warburg and St. Johns, I think we're in for a really good round too. And that's not something that we always say. One of those games that uh, I, I tuned out turned at, uh, came back to be a game that was really very interesting. And we'll talk more about uh, that and some of the other games as uh, we move on, uh, starting first with my game ball. So I thought I would give half a game ball to Steve Kadosu because he had four catches for 238 yards and four touchdowns in just one half of action on Saturday and then basically didn't play the second half uh, as Wesley crushed Hampton-Sydney. Uh, and then I'm going to give the other half of my game ball uh, to Billy Kelly and Alex Schramm of uh, W&J. Uh, they each picked off three passes in that win versus Wittenberg. Crazy day for interceptions, Keith. Uh, Tyler Harper threw eight uh, for St. Scholastica. Zach Jenkins threw the eight for Wittenberg. And Nash Nance with six for Hampton-Sydney. Uh, five of them in the first half. Um, and just, a, uh, just a, a, a great day to be a defensive back, I guess I would have to say. Oh, every day is a great day to be a defensive back. Um, you you gave a half a game ball to two guys, so they each end up with a quarter of a game ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the math, good if you, job. If you, if you can give fractional game balls, I'm giving three game balls to the defenses of Wesley St. John's and Washington Jefferson. You talked about the interceptions. Uh, the Johnnies intercepted St. Selaska's Harper eight times. The Presidents did the same to Wittenberg's Zach Jenkins. And the Wolverines, as you mentioned, only intercepted Nash Nance Amir six times, but five were on consecutive first quarter possessions. Hampton City had the ball eight times in the first quarter. Uh, five First quarter possessions uh, were uh, were interceptions. Two of those went back to touchdowns on the way to a 42-0 first quarter lead for Wesley. Um, you throw in 
you know, Wabash, which had six sacks of uh, Franklin's Grant Welp. And, uh, you know, when your defense gives you that much of an opportunity, especially against playoff teams, it makes the offense and the special teams jobs that much easier. You know, in fact, it, it probably makes the, the coaches jobs easier. The fans, you know, they don't have to uh, to deal with the tension that like Hobart and, uh, and MIT had to deal with on Saturday. Those defensive performances are every bit as big as the big offensive days we saw across the nation on Saturday or on Sunday, as it were. I think we'll just go bracket by bracket from uh, here on out, uh, starting with the top left, the whitewater bracket. Um, so my takeaway from that bracket is uh, seeing St. John's still uh, struggle a little bit on offense. Um, they scored only 35 against uh, St. Scholastica. you got to understand, St. Scholastica came out of that game feeling really confident about the future of the program. That's the best performance that they've had, uh, especially defensively, in uh, any of their playoff um, playoff trips so far. Really tight game at the half. And then, uh, you know, uh, St. Scholastica uh, kicked an onside kick, recovered it, should have recovered it. And for some reason, the uh, officiating crew out of the WIAC uh, threw out some crazy explanation for why they gave the ball to St. John's. Um, but uh, part of this is the Johnnies are still struggling a little bit on offense. Sam Sir is still the man in the backfield, but uh, Martin, the quarterback, was missing wide open receivers when he was throwing the ball, and he will definitely face more pressure from the Warburg defensive front than he did from St. Scholastica. So, yes, we're occasionally reminded that the Johnnies were missing their starting quarterback in their one loss of the season, but the offense doesn't generally include a dynamic passing game anyway, and it was a, a good uh, demonstration of that on uh, Saturday. Well, my uh, highlight takeaway from the top left bracket, it's going it's tough for me to call it that. I'll still call it the whitewater bracket, is, uh, you know, Wabash is, is moonlighting here and Linfield is elsewhere, so I can't call it the west. But it's still the, the toughest overall region year to year to advance through. And uh, this is the best foursome left in the bracket. You're looking at uh, Whitewater, Wabash, Wartburg, and St. John's. Uh, you know, Wartburg is both the, the fifth-ranked team in the country and the upstart among this group of, of historically successful programs. The Knights have a long winning tradition themselves, of course, but it's nothing like that of, of the Johnnies or the Warhawks. Uh, you know, back in the here and now, Wartburg represents the new age of football, tempo on offense, you know, all those plays that the teams were scarcely running 10 years ago. They're a handful. They really are. And uh, they've already beaten three Mayak teams this season, but their revitalized Johnnies won't go quietly. Yeah, the question I got most on Saturday was, have you seen Wartburg? And the second most frequently asked question was, is Wartburg legit? Answer is yes to both, and that uh, Wartburg-St. John's game is my intriguing, most intriguing second-round matchup in that bracket. Well, if uh, you've got Johnny's Knights, I'll play ball and, uh, and take Warhawks Little Giants. We're, we're past the cakewalk portion of the playoffs now. Even the one seeds are going to have to work to advance. Matt Barrett was uh, 17 of 20 with no interceptions in the 55-2 win over McAllister, and he was sacked just once. Wabash, as we mentioned, sacked Grant Welp six times, and they're going to have to get Barrett off his spot, uh, you know, if they can even slow the Whitewater running game enough to get into passing situations to make this into a game. Wabash and Whitewater, I think they're both comfortable in a defensive slugfest. So this could be better, a, a better game than uh, than those peddling the David and Goliath storyline would have you believe. And just so we're clear on that, Whitewater is the Goliath because of championships, not because of its enrollment. Given their hundred man roster limit and the fact that that Wabash uh, actually started camp with more players, um, 125 in camp, uh, maybe you know going by that measure, uh, they'd be the Goliath. The um, I'm not sure all the one seeds are going to have to work uh, that hard to advance this week, but uh, we could have that discussion uh, a week from now and see how that goes. 
Um, moving to the bottom left. I just like saying bottom left because I, I like our, that our bracket is still horizontal. It's a... Uh, it's more legible that way in my mind. Uh, or the Mary Harden Baylor bracket, if you like it. Um, you know, my takeaway out of this uh, uh, group of teams is uh, seeing Linfield is definitely inspired, which is good. Um, I said this elsewhere last week. This game could have gone either way in terms of emotion after the trying week the Linfield College community had. And the Wildcats definitely came to play. They jumped out on top uh, huge early on Chapman and just kind of cruised from there. If I had to call one specific highlight out of this uh, bracket or out of this game, uh, perhaps when the Linfield offense took the field with just 10 players for its first snap, uh, you know, the uh, missing man formation. Yeah, and Linfield, uh, you mentioned that fast start, 28-0 against Chapman. They only scored 21 points uh, the first time they played, so they were definitely uh, inspired. My highlight from this bracket, if if we can't count um, the delayed game since we've already discussed that, how about the moment when Christopher Newport and Widener were simultaneously kicking game-winning field goals, providing us with the first-round excitement, even though the top seeds were mostly rolling? It was almost a double upset for foursome and an awful day for the Mac. Uh, but respect is due both to the Mules and to the captains. Muhlenberg went toe-to-toe with Widener, and after taking a 35-31 lead, the Mules intercepted the pride on the three-yard line. And not long after that, they stopped them three times from the one-yard line and took over on downs, setting up what ended up being a disputed safety that made it a two-point game. So at that point, it's 35-33. Widener still has to drive and get in position for the game-winning field goal. There was a, a play on, on that on that possession where uh, um, Seth Klein was um, trying to struggle free from the grasp of, uh, of being sacked, and he was in definitely you know in the middle of the field in the tackle box and and just threw the ball away. And uh, officials first come out with a flag saying it was intentional grounding. Then they pick it up and wave it off. There was no real explanation. I I, I wasn't that troubled by it. Muhlenberg still had a, had a chance um, to you know to to make um, you know, that that took place maybe midfield. Um, so Muhlenberg still had a chance at that point. Um, and, uh, you know, as all that is happening, Christopher Newport is completing its rally from down 26-7 to knock DelVal out of the tournament. They end up winning 29-26. So these kicks are happening at the same time within 45 miles of one another in Pennsylvania. And if the disbelief on the Widener broadcast at the comeback itself wasn't enough, the crew couldn't help but let out an exasperated, what did we do to deserve this laugh when, uh, when word of DelVal's demise made it to the broadcast? I'm sure both MAC teams were looking forward to a rematch of the Week 11 conference title clinching game that Widener won. But CNU, which will, which will be playing um, a lot more in the Delaware Valley and points further north beginning next season, they derailed those plans. I tell you, Christopher Newport really looked uh, ready for the end jack yesterday. And, and by the way, that was the game I had checked out of uh, before having to uh, drag myself back in as I uh, continued to go back to the live stats. Um, similar to the dueling field goal story, of course, uh, Harper and Jenkins threw their eighth interceptions mere minutes apart. Harper had, I guess we'll call it the misfortune of throwing his first. So he broke the record and Jenkins tied it. Uh, so that was another question I got a few times on Saturday. What's the record for most interceptions in a game, uh, in a playoff game? It had been seven, held by three players, uh, including former WJ quarterback Brian Dawson and former Wittenberg quarterback Ben Zeller. So WJ's defense helped got uh, helped get Brian Dawson's name out of the record book. That's a guy who is one of the most prolific uh, quarterbacks of uh, the last 15, 16 years in Division Three football, and yet this is what I at least remember him for. 
That's that's rough. I know. Well, it was a you know that it's that Bridgewater W and J game, and uh, W and J had a huge lead, and then uh, the picks happened, and Bridgewater ended up winning fifty nine forty two. That was the game that made Bridgewater too, wasn't it? The, the one where they really took the leap into um, from just being kind of a pretty good regional program to being one that could win in the playoffs. Yeah, I think so. Looking ahead to the second round in this bracket, um, can't help but to be interested in either one. But I think actually Mary Harden Baylor and Linfield has the biggest upset potential. Um, you know, obviously the strange way the first round uh, Mary Harden Baylor game was played may have something to do with it, but certainly the crew is going to need to have the ball more than 12 minutes versus Linfield. And you know, of all you know, after all that's said and done, uh, Linfield has never lost to Mary Harden Baylor. Um, you know, Linfield comes in. Uh, pretty inspired and, and riding a high. So that should be a, a pretty interesting second round game. Yeah, those two teams, of course, the the rematch of the meeting in uh, the 2004 Stagwall. They also played in 2009 in the playoffs and, and Linfield won that game big. Look, Linfield at Mary Harden Baylor would be the highlight any of any round it was played in. But to have this game in the second round, that, wow, right? Uh, th- this was set like this so that two rounds in, the, the four island teams who'd need to fly to play anybody else in the tournament would be reduced to one. There's there's Chapman, there's Linfield, there's Mary Harden Baylor, there's Texas Lutheran. All those teams would have to fly except for, you know, Mary Harden Baylor and Texas Lutheran playing each other. So, you know, it makes me wonder, would they still have done that had, had Linfield gone undefeated this regular season or if, or if they were a clear one seed? What if, and this is certainly a believable scenario, what if Linfield and Mary Harden-Baylor were the top two teams in the country? Would they still be matched up against each other this early? At any rate, Linfield did lose that that one regular season game to Willamette, and I was inclined to believe that this isn't the the powerful Wildcats that we're used to. But it looks like the way they've played the past two weeks against good teams, crushing Pacific 59-0, and then, and then beating Chapman, uh, running away with that game 55-24, I believe was the, the final, uh, you know, they're scary again. They were obviously inspired last week playing under some some unusual circumstances. Mary Harden-Baylor played under unusual circumstances as well. And uh, and they can't have another game like they did against Texas Lutheran, running only 35 plays and leaning on the defense to win it. I think we all know the answer to Keith's rhetorical question. Would the NCAA have matched Linfield and Mary Harden-Baylor up in the second round if both were undefeated and potential one-seed teams? Uh, yeah, I think we know, especially this year more than ever, uh, how that would have gone down. So let's just move on. Thankfully, uh, we didn't really have to contemplate that because it probably would have happened. Uh, moving to the Wesley bracket, the top right-hand side. Uh, the, I have to a highlight out of this has to be just how MIT won that game at Husson. So I'll just kind of take you through the last couple of minutes here. Uh, the clock is malfunctioning, so the game clock is being kept on the field. MIT gets the ball back with 48 seconds left in regulation out of timeouts. Uh, engineers rush the field goal unit onto the field and make a 38-yard field goal as time expired to send it into overtime. Now, Husson actually had two chances to either win this game or tie it up in the closing seconds. First time, they shot themselves in the foot, committing an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty in the final seconds of regulation. That put MIT into field goal range. Second time was when over in overtime when Husson took a timeout as the ball was being snapped on a fourth and goal from the nine, and Husson's second shot at the play went incomplete. And, of course, none of that takes into account the fact that MIT actually blocked Husson's PAT on its final touchdown. If they'd made that kick, it would have been a four-point game, and MIT would have been trying to drive for the end zone in 49 seconds rather than get themselves into field goal range. 
this is uh, this is a great game with a lot of subplots for two first-time playoff teams, even if you know they weren't really meant to play each other the way the seedings would have turned out. Well, my highlight from that bracket, you know, it stood out to me that that these two teams who'd won easily most of the season, Johns Hopkins and Hobart, they each won slugfests. Part of it, of course, was the caliber of competition. Ithaca and Rowan were both tested, gritty champions of good conferences. And that's the type of thing we want to see in the postseason, tight games. But I watched the fourth quarter of the Hobart win, and the final drive, there was nothing pretty or spectacular about it. Hobart, Hobart, Hobart <laughs> scored uh, two fourth-quarter touchdowns on 72-yard drives. One was 11 plays, one was a 14-play drive. And Patrick Conlon, the quarterback, actually missed three plays on the final drive. You know, the, the drive itself was mostly three yards by Connor Hardigan, four-yard completion by Conlon. There was really only that one great play, a 33-yard catch uh, by the big freshman tight end that put them on the 12-yard line. And, uh, and then they grinded their way in at that point to the end zone against Ithaca instead of settling for a field goal attempt by Will McCool, who has one of the McCoolest kicker names I think I'd ever uh, heard. But, um, but he, had, he didn't have a great day kicking, and so they were, they were trying to go ahead and score uh, the touchdown there. The game was tied at 15 at that point, and they went ahead and, uh, and punched it in. And you know, it was such a slugfest, and I don't think the Hopkins game was any different. The Blue Jays had 10, uh, 2.9 yards of carry, only three third-down conversions, but because Rowan all season had been a team that was leaning on its defense and kind of struggled offensively except in the running game, uh, Johns Hopkins was able to grind that one out. I saw a note earlier in the week, Johns Hopkins had played, I think it had only played one NJAC team and hadn't played an NJAC team in like 30 plus years. Um, so that's a, that's a gap. Uh, Johns Hopkins could go, you could go schedule yourself an NJAC team sometime. That'd be good. I'll, you know, not that there's anything wrong with the, the one team that they do schedule out of conference these days, which is Keith's, yeah, Keith. Yeah, let's make it clear. <laughs> Keith's alma mater, Randolph Macon. Um, looking ahead to that second round, I think you and I have talked uh, about Johns Hopkins versus Hobart a couple times this year and, you know, how they relate to each other on a national level. Uh, Johns Hopkins seems to be playing better right now, but Hobart has the home field. I, I see these teams haven't played each other since the sixties going back to, you know, what I was talking about a moment ago, but I, I'm sure that's not true in lacrosse where they're both, uh, uh, D one teams. And at, at some point you could call each of them D one powers. Uh, is that right? Maybe it would, maybe Hobart was a D three power and is now playing D one. I I just know that they're not playing lacrosse with the rest of us. Well, believe it or not, that's actually not the first time I've I've discussed this matchup in a lacrosse context today. Uh, I work with a guy named Christian Sweezy, who's a big lacrosse buff. Christian uh, Sweezy, I, I, I remember Christian Sweezy? Yeah. So he always asked me about the D3 playoff scores. And then, of course, I was talking about Hopkins and Hobart, and we got on lacrosse. But anyway, uh, you know, no doubt that that matchup, Hopkins and Hobart, is more intriguing than Wesley MIT. You made reference to um, one of the one seeds not having to work this, this as much this week. I would say that that playing MIT might even be an easier matchup for Wesley than Hampton Sydney, but the way things went against Hampton Sydney couldn't, couldn't possibly be any easier than that, could it? Um, as, as far as the Blue Jays and the Statesmen, you know, they're kind of mirror images of each other in a lot of ways. Um, teams, as we've mentioned, who kind of f- run through their conferences, float up the rankings each year, and, and then they kind of have this uh, ceiling where they, they hit in the postseason. And, uh, you know, so as their mirror images, I'm kind of eager to see them play, even though I'm not really sure uh, what to make of how they match up this season. Johns Hopkins advanced to the quarterfinals a few years ago, and uh, Hobart advanced to the quarters uh, about a year or two after that. So 
Uh, they're both teams that have gone that deep in the playoffs. But often, yes, they run into uh, uh, teams that are of uh, national prominence and they get bounced early in the bracket. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, game plays out. That's definitely the intriguing one in that bracket. Moving on to the bottom right, this is the Mount Union bracket. Uh, my takeaway, I mean, I was never really sold on Wittenberg basically the entire season. As I was putting together my top 25 poll, this was a team that I kept uh, having other teams hop over in my uh, ballot because I just didn't really see them as being top 10 material. And for W&J, which has had some unfortunate and uh, sometimes, frankly, incorrect first round pairings in recent years, this was a nice vindication. Uh, Mike Sirianni, you, you know, if, if you don't know, he's a, uh, uh, he played wide receiver at Mount Union. Um, he's been the head coach at WJ now, I think, for probably a decade. Uh, said in the postgame news conference that he was already going to go to Alliance Ohio for Thanksgiving, so he might as well take 58 of his guys with him. And that's, yeah, that's on, a pretty good line there. And that's on the NCAA's dime, by the way. Um, my takeaway from this bracket is uh, that John Carroll got over the hump that that tripped him up last year and did it in spectacular fashion. You know, to be quite honest, I was never really ready to buy in on on John Carroll this season. You you know, they it, it was fine to move them up to the to to number six in the poll um, because they had earned that. But I was I really had to see them do it against Mountain Union and then do it in the playoffs. And I I got to rewatch a bunch of that game um, on on DVR. And uh, they, they really did go toe-to-toe with Mountain Union. They fell behind early like they always did, but in the you know, second half dominated them up front. And it wasn't a surprise to see them take control against center, even though center is 10-0 team. Uh, they hadn't played anybody quite John Carroll's caliber. And so, you know, I, I, I really want to see uh, the Blue Streaks now can, you know, continue to put it together on a week-to-week basis, I think they're really good up, up front. You know, we talk about Mark Myers all the time, but their running game's actually pretty good. Uh, Tommy Michaels has impressed 150 yards the past couple of weeks. Um, and, and, you know, Wheaton is kind of flying below the radar a little bit this year. We haven't talked as much about the CCIW as we normally do. Wheaton, you know, had the quarterback struggles through, you know, took them till midseason to, to settle on pelts. Uh, as their quarterback, and they they obviously had the big win against North Central, but they they kind of been flying low. I think that's going to be a really really uh, great matchup, John Carroll and and Wheaton in round two. Yeah, it really is. I mean, especially um, when you consider that if you look at the other half of the bracket, right? Whenever there's a Mountain Union game, the other has to be the most intriguing matchup, at least when you're in the early <laughs> rounds like this. Yeah, it really does. And I, I actually listened to the Mountain Union game, and, and you're right, Pat. They they did what they always do. You know, even if the Mountain Union teams from year to year aren't the same, and I'm kind of listening just to try to find flaws or, or or tidbits that will matter two or three rounds from now when we actually broadcast the Mountain Union games, um, it, it, it is just it's it's amazing, and we sometimes don't give Mountain Union enough credit for being consistently good. There were there were you know Kevin Burke is is outstanding. Um, not just in the in the passing game, you know they they were without one of their starting receivers. They just brought a sophomore in, and, and Burke hit him like four times in the first two drives of the game. And uh, there was you know crazy wind, and Mount Union was throwing into the wind. They didn't care. And uh, Adrian, 
they forced a punt on the first drive and you and, and you feel like oh well, maybe they'll they'll actually hang around in this game for a while and, and it was just a typical Mountain Union game so um, yeah I, I think the the John Carroll Wheaton game is certainly the highlight of uh, of this bracket but uh, but it's not a bad second round matchup for uh, for Mountain Union to play W and J because they they scrimmage every preseason and uh, and they obviously got the family ties with Sirianni. Yeah, um, and that, so that John Carroll Wheaton game—that's going to be the best team Wheaton has faced all season, to be sure. Um, one other kind of small tidbit out of this game: uh, Let's see, Wheaton had two PATs blocked in the fourth quarter on uh, on on Saturday, and then uh, of course on the other side, John Carroll has its own kicking struggles or kicking adversity, I guess we should say. If you've seen the name Kresmir Ivkovic, that's the guy who kicks the really long field goals for John Carroll. Uh, he's out. He uh, injured himself in uh, a, with a couple of weeks ago in the regular season, and he is done for the season. So just if it comes down to a long field goal, um, someone might get one blocked and someone might not have the leg or who knows. But, uh, you, know, you know, if if, if you, uh, Keith, if you're going to go on the record as thinking, Mountain Union W and J is going to be competitive. That really gives us seven really competitive second round games. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I guess we're missing the the Widener Delval game, which when I looked at this uh, bracket and the way it was going to shape up, I thought, man, these these are going to be some really good second round games. If everybody we expect to win wins, and almost everybody we we did expect to win wins. I guess you know Mount Union Wittenberg probably would have had um, some interesting ties as well with the Ohio um, ties between them, the old OAC power versus the new OAC power. But um, uh, Mountain Union WNJ is is pretty great. Um, Whitewater and Wabash, I, th- I don't think that's that's quite a cakewalk for for Whitewater. It's certainly uh, Bash has been uh, has has been pretty good, not just year to year, but they've been pretty uh, pretty. Crafty, I'll say, the season on defense, scoring on special teams, that sort of thing. Uh, the Warburg St. John's game, we we didn't really talk much about that one, but that could be a real doozy. You're looking at you know Linfield and Mary Harden Baylor in the second round. Um, Christopher Newport, I you know against Widener, I'm not not totally sure what to make of that, but the cert- ton of offensive talent on, on both teams. Those teams can can put up points. So if, you know we wouldn't be surprised if we see a 37-35 game or a game in the 40s, and, and we'll get to that when we get to triple take picks this week. Uh, you know, again trying to forecast the scores, and then on the other side of the bracket, really looking forward to Johns Hopkins Hobart um, because those two teams, like I said, are mirror images of each other. Wesley MIT, um, I, I think this is the end of MIT's feel good run. I'm glad they got their their overtime win because you know Wesley. We've said that this is one of their best teams, but but um, Marty Favret in the uh, in the post game Hampton Sydney said he's been coaching 20 years now and been to the playoffs several times with both Catholic and Hampton Sydney. Uh, he said that's that Wesley team is the best team he's seen. Moving on to the flash drive, so with a lot of discussion about Pool C, and you know you get uh, six of those teams get to get in. Um, you know, only two of them won, but you know, uh, obviously one of them was guaranteed to lose because of, uh, John Carroll and center playing each other. And, uh, you know, the, the teams that were among the last to get in, or we presume are among the last to get in are uh, performed pretty well, even if they didn't advance. 
Yeah, you know, St. Thomas was was in that game with uh, with Wartburg for much of the game. They end up losing 37-31, and Muhlenberg led in the fourth quarter and end up losing by one point. So, you know, the t- probably the two last teams in the tournament, St. Thomas and Muhlenberg, certainly proved they deserve to be there. And then you take a look at the the first team out or the the team that we projected in that that didn't get in, Framingham State. You know, they needed overtime to beat uh, RPI in the ECAC South Atlantic Bowl. So. Um, you got to give a little bit of credit, I think, here to the uh, to, to the selection committee. You know, of uh, along with Pool C, of course, you did have uh, John Carolyn Wabash winning. Delval was uh, was the the victim of the biggest upset, of course, and center lost badly. So it wasn't a perfect day for uh, for for Pool C. But in general, the second chance teams acquitted themselves well. And so, you know, between that and between this mighty second round that we have coming up here, I think the selection committee deserves some kudos if not an apology from some of the folks out there who said uh, they, they botched this whole thing. It's actually looking like a pretty good tournament. I don't think anybody, I don't remember too many people other than really biased fans for one team or another saying that they botched it. So, um, you know, Fair enough. fans are fans. I, I'm not going to read too much into ECAC uh, postseason um uh, you know, uh, quality of game or how, just performance in general, because as we know, sometimes uh, teams show up and sometimes they don't. Um, although there's a, a pretty interesting one, just a highlight from somewhere else. Um, well, uh, just uh, for example, St. John Fisher, uh, they won a low scoring game against Western Connecticut. That's a bit of a surprise. That's, that, that might be a game where uh, they didn't come out uh, so, so fired up. But um, I just uh, poked my head into the Morrisville State Utica box score. Uh, so remember, Morrisville State lost in the tiebreaker in the uh, in the New Jersey Athletic Conference, so they did not get the automatic bid. Uh, Lamar Johnson, however, got to end his career on a high note uh, as quarterback for the Mustangs. Ran 26 times for 210 yards and five touchdowns. Threw for 118 yards and another score in a 52-41 win against Utica. I guess the question for Morrisville State next year is what do they do after this? Because that's uh, one pretty special kid that, uh, that they're going to be losing. Yeah. We've definitely seen teams who have a transcendent quarterback kind of rise up for a couple of years. Uh, Case Western reserve with, uh, with Dan Whalen is one of the ones that comes to mind. You know, they, they rise up to 10 and O level. And then when that quarterback moves on, they're kind of back to five to seven or eight wins. So we'll see where, where, Morrisville State ends up after uh, after having an eight win team, and you know, good for uh, good for I guess they're nine wins now if you if you count the ECAC win, and good for them being able to end the season on a high note because if if you think about it, there's some really good teams that uh, that just got dumped on on Saturday, uh, center riding high ten and zero loving life. And then you go into the playoffs and you get beat 63-28 by John Carroll. Del Val, two weeks ago, 9-0, and you know, top 15 in the country. Uh, lose to Widener, then get upset in the first round. So, you know, this is a – to move on week to week, obviously the teams are playing for an extra week of, of camaraderie and, and being able to just go through practice again and, and take the road trip and, and have fun. Um, it's not easy, though, man. And, and we always, I tend to over-celebrate the winner sometimes and forget, you know, that there were, there were uh, each, each time we move on around in this field, we lop, it, we lop half the teams off. So we just went from 32 to 16, and that's 16 pretty good teams whose season is, are over. 
looking back at how we picked the first round, um, you know, Keith is the uh, clear winner, fifteen and one. Uh, the only miss was uh, Delval. All three of us missed Delval, uh, myself and uh, and uh, Ryan Tips as well. Um, really, of the so um, Tips and I each went thirteen and three. Of the seven ones that we missed on, uh, let's see, one went to overtime. Uh, three, as it were, uh, three of the picks went out on a uh, last-second field goal, and uh, two of them on a touchdown with uh, under I don't know however uh, where where were we in that game and with mere seconds to go. So um, you know, obviously in a, a situation where um, competitive games were played, we had a pretty good idea what games were going to be competitive, and I I just wanted to. Uh, just point out that you and I were definitely channeled, I think, in the same place to pick W&J over Wittenberg. Yeah, and, and that was uh, – I even had to like kind of recondition myself before we went on today to record because I'm thinking, well, there's really only one upset in the first round, but actually there was two. Um, I, we just as, – as I was watching that game personally, I didn't consider it too big of an upset for W&J, but it was a, a 4-5 game. Wittenberg was a, a team that hadn't lost – to any D3 teams all season, whereas W&J was coming in uh, off off a Week 11 loss to Waynesburg. So it was certainly an upset. And uh, of the of the two surprise winners in uh, in Round 1, W&J and, and CNU are those two. And uh, kudos to Adam Turr, our Around the Mid-Atlantic columnist, who added his picks into the mix and went 14-2, and two, um, missing on yeah. St. Thomas and DelVal. Again, both real competitive games down to the wire. Yeah, and I sh- we shouldn't, you know, we don't obviously do the, the the triple take. The point is to to set the national expectations so that people kind of know what they're looking at, especially if you only follow one conference or one team all season and you don't know what to make of all these other games. But um, you know, we can we can pat ourselves on the back for w- winning thirteen, fourteen, or fifteen uh, pick correct picks in week one. But it'll be real impressive if. Somebody comes through and is able to pick the winner in in John Carroll Wheaton and Johns Hopkins Hobart and Warburg St. Johns and Linfield Mary Harden Baylor. You know, I guess some of them have some pretty clear favorites, but uh, but this is going to be a much much tougher week to pick. Also coming up this week, and actually uh, out later today, if you're listening to this on Monday morning, keep an eye out for the uh, ten finalists for the Gillardy Trophy because uh, they will be out, I believe, before. Uh, lunchtime on Monday. So Keith and I have gotten a sneak peek at the final 10 and it looks like a pretty good group. Um, You know, some years we've been so uh, we've been, we've been instructed as voters and Keith and I both vote on the Gillardi trophy. We've been instructed as voters that this is a football award and the other uh, two aspects, academics and community service should be considered uh, as, you know, tiebreakers or whatever, you know, just uh, as a smaller part of the package. But what we have gotten as the 10 finalists from the uh, the J Club at St. John's that reviews it and puts the 10 finalists together is a group that doesn't reflect that. It reflects uh, that you get a lot of kids who have really high academics and maybe haven't uh, performed as well on the field or, you know, do so against dubious competition or that sort of thing. I think we had a really em- good emphasis on strong football performance this year, and I think uh, it'll be a really interesting race. There are not... When I'm, you know, sometimes when I'm doing my ballot, there are like three kids at the bottom that I would just automatically eliminate and put them one, two, three at the bottom. Um, or like last year when a kid was nominated uh, who had been in Division Two for his entire career before coming in, I actually left that spot blank on the ballot. I didn't even vote for that person. But this year we're ha- not going to have that uh, 
It's not going to be that easy. It's going to be really tough for those of us who have a full ballot to rank them from one to 10 or from 10 to one, however you think of it. Yeah. And I, I don't think I would ever want to knock one of the 10 kids that, that are in the Kaladi uh, Trophy finalists because they're all amazing kids and, and leaders. And, and I'm not just saying that to be a, to, to be a booster. I mean, I think that you, you read the kids' bios and you're like, dad, this guy's going to do something in life. But there are times when that list of 10 comes out and it's not just who's on the list, but there's somebody missing. One of the best players in the country is not on the list, wasn't nominated by a school for whatever reason. I think we got to look at that list uh, uh, today, the one that, that, that you guys will all get a chance to see. And the name, you, you know, the names you need to see on there are on the list. So it should be a um, pretty intriguing run up to, to that award being given out um, the week of the championship game in Salem. So don't forget, you get a chance to uh, cast a ballot. The uh, the the uh, collected fan vote accounts uh, counts as one of the ballots for this uh, for this award. So vote early and vote often. And by often, I mean on as many devices as you can uh, get your hands on, because it is just one vote per device. But uh, that uh, ballot will be on the front page of d3football.com. You can uh, see it there all week. Or just go to d3football.com slash Gallardi vote, Gallardi hyphen vote. That'll be, uh, that'll be your permanent link to get to it. So we got that going on all week. Uh, we'll have a, a slate of Road to Salem features. We also have the Thanksgiving holiday this weekend. So, of course, uh, everybody travel safe. We hope you have a, a, a great holiday and uh, get to eat and watch football. But that also means we won't have a, as many uh, feature stories because we don't have as many days to present them to you. We know you tune out on Thanksgiving and uh Keith and I like to try to do that also. Um, all region team nomination deadline is next Sunday. Uh, that is, of course, for SIDs to know and for uh, everybody else to find out, I suppose. Um, uh, those are the things that are coming up in the next week as we get you towards the second round action and continuing on this inexorable march to Salem. We will be doing the, uh, we still have a d3football.com play of the week sponsored by the city of Salem. But, uh, Division Three's Championship City. That uh, nomination deadline is 5 p.m. on Monday. I've gotten a couple of plays already that I'm looking forward to uh, sharing with the rest of the crew and with you guys as well out there. So thanks for tuning in. This is the Around the Nation podcast. We'll see you next week.